Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress the History of Fashion as a production of iHeartRadio. Over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan. And Cassidy Zachary. So in May 1848, Godey's Ladies Book advised its readers, quote, in order to obtain a good picture, it is necessary to go to a daguerreotypist who has the eye and taste of an artist or who employs such a person in his establishment. And it is also necessary to dress in colors that do not reflect too much light. For a lady, a good dress is of some dark or figured material, white, pink, or light Blue must be avoided. Lace work or a scarf or shawl sometimes adds much to the beauty of the picture. A gentleman should wear a dark vest and cravat. And for children, a plaid or dark striped or figured dress is preferred by most daguerreotypists. Light dresses are in all cases to be avoided, end quote. And in today's digital cell phone age, it's almost hard to remember a time when we didn't have instant photography capabilities at our very own fingertips. But in the mid-19th century, people were entirely reliant on a professional photographer's talent to capture their family photos. And at the time of this article that Cass just quoted from, photography had only really been around available to the masses for more or less than a decade. And the limits of the medium, such as prolonged exposure times, rely on natural light, black and white images, well, all of this meant that the color of your clothes mattered. And of course, so too did the style of your clothes. And as fashion historians, photographs are, of course, some of our best primary source materials. I mean, knowing your fashion history is such an essential tool in dating photographs because people from any given era across the economic spectrum really strove for the fashionable ideal in their clothing, even if it was only reflected in their, you know, Sunday's best clothing worn to their photography appointments. And dating fashion is certainly an important skill employed by today's guest, who I have to say, April, is a first for the show. She sure is. We have had many types of guests on the show, curators and conservators, fashion designers and photographers, artists and historical costumers. But today marks the first time that we will be having one of the world's foremost photo detectives on the show. Today's guest is Maureen Taylor, whose pioneering work solving photo mysteries has earned her numerous accolades and an international clientele. Yeah, and actually identifying and dating fashion is central to Maureen's work and a skill that she has generously outlined for readers in numerous books, including the one that serves as the basis for today's conversation. And that book is entitled Family Photo Detective, Learn How to Find Genealogy Clues in Old Photos and Solve Family Photo Mysteries. We are so excited to learn more. Maureen, welcome to Dressed. Maureen, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. 
It's such a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much for asking. I have to say, this is definitely a first for Dressed. We've done over 400 episodes, but we've never talked to a photo detective. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to know, what led you to your fascinating profession? I mean, how does one become a photo detective genealogist? Yeah. So, I mean, my mom, I really credit my mom with getting me interested in this. I was always this quirky kid who was really interested in history And she would show us the family photos and I would ask lots of questions about, oh, why do they wear that hat or where are they and all that kind of thing. I mean, who knew that you could actually do this for uh, a profession? And then I thought I wanted to work in a museum because I like history. I like things. I like antiques, you know, that kind of thing. And then I became a curator of images and realized that this is what I was meant to do was this is everything had been leading up to this minute because all the history that's present in the photographs needs to be told. And a lot of people don't have that visual literacy to look at the pictures and fit them in the context of what's happening in the world or in your town or in your family. And I love what I do. Yeah, what you do is absolutely fascinating, and we're going to learn all about it today. I'm so excited. Because for you, studying a photograph is not just about dating it. It's, as you just mentioned, it's really an entry point into discovering the story of a photograph and the person or people it depicts. It's storytelling. Why is that aspect important to you? Because every photo tells a story. Either it's a simple story of, you know, it's a snapshot from the 1920s, And everyone's just gathered around and they have the new camera and they want to play with it. You know, let's get this group in it. Let's get that group in it. They swap the camera around. There's a story right there. In other cases, the photographs are quite significant because they document a piece of history or a piece of somebody's family history that they don't know anything about. That's my actually my favorite case is when someone comes to me with a photograph and they say, yeah, I don't know anything about this. And they share their family history and we dig into everything that they know. And I already know, because I've looked at the photo, that this photo predates what they know about their family. It's like, this is a gem. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> yeah. And you have this incredibly detailed multi-step approach to evaluating dating and identifying a photograph. You use certain tools. You look for certain clues that help you not only date that photo, but also discover that story and that history. And a little bit later on, we're actually going to look at images or discuss photographs in a locket from my family history um, that I shared with you and that you so graciously researched. But first, let's just kind of go through your process. Um, One of the very first steps in your process is identifying photograph type. And I would love if you could talk about the different types of photography, perhaps beginning with a brief history of its evolution. I don't think a lot of people may know the history of photography. Well, there were lots of people tinkering with trying to make a permanent image, something commercially successful. And then in about 1839, there is a man in France, Louis Daguerre, who, with some others, who developed this image on a silver-coated copper plate called the daguerreotype. And they they are stunningly beautiful. It feels like the people are alive when you look at them. There's a 3D aspect to them. And they are popular, depending on where you live, till about 1865, 60, 65. Really depends. And then the next type of photo is, you know, considered the amber type, 
from it's on glass. It's a collodion coated image and then backed with something to make it look positive. And that's uh, 1854 to somewhere around 1870. Then we get into the, the little card photographs, little carte de visites that are like two and a half by four inches. And they were so popular that it was coined cardomania. because everybody wanted to have their picture taken and you could have multiples made as well. So you could go in with your friends, you could collect images of all the people that you admired, whether it was an author, whether or not it was royalty, civil war generals. I mean, it started this whole collecting phase of, of images. I mean, there were paper images before that in England and even some large format paper things that I've been researching locally um, in the early 50s and e- even before that. But for most people, like the common photographic types, you've got types, types, and then you've got card photographs, card to visite, some cabinet cards, which are larger. And then we get right into the snapshot era. You push the button, we do the rest. Yeah, and you're talking, I mean, you have this wonderful book and you write about Kodak, right? So Kodak is really kind of this birth of amateur photography. So where in the 19th century, you have a lot of, you know, you go to the studio, you get your amber type, your daguerreotype, or your tin type, which is those card photographs you're talking about. And then you have this innovation of this new camera that you yourself can use, right? Can you talk a little bit about the democratization of photography and what that meant for photos? Well, if we think about it in terms of the daguerreotype era first, that was considered a democratic art because you didn't have to have, I mean, it was expensive, but you didn't have to have a painter come to your house and paint your portrait or go to the studio. Anyone with a little change in their pocket could go and have a picture made. Now, were people comfortable in front of the camera? Maybe not. I mean, it is new. Um, people sometimes do look pretty uncomfortable in those images and yeah. <laughs> sometimes they're clamped in place and they, you know, they're looking a little uncertain, which is just great. Uh, but then when you get into the snapshot era, Kodak and the other companies that copy Kodak, you know, about 1888, suddenly people really relax in front of the camera. And in the earlier periods, you pretty much needed a photographer, either had to go to the studio or you had to have a photographer in the family. And and there were photographers in the family. But then once you get into the snapshot era, we get to see what people's everyday life is really like. People are in their average clothes. They're out in the backyard. Grandma's cooking in the kitchen. I mean, it's a whole new world. And we build on that today with our, you know, picture a second kind of thing that we do. And you write about how the wide availability of these cameras really helped create the majority of photographs in our family collections, right? Most people have these types of photographs in their family collections because, of course, it just continues to expand and expand and expand across the 20th and 21st centuries. Of course, we're now we're in the digital age of photography. But I just love when you're talking about the birth of amateur photography in your book. You write about the Brownie, which is a specific camera, and how Kodak marketed to women and children specifically and how this 17-year-old Bernice Palmer, who was a, a passenger on the Carpathia, captured the sinking of the Titanic with her own camera. Yeah. I mean, photography was a male domain for the most part. I mean, there, were fam- there are famous women photographers in the 19th century. Women had studios. 
but it's mostly considered a male domain. And then you get into the snapshot era and anyone can have a camera. But it isn't until about 1900 that Kodak says, hey, let's market this to kids. And then they sell, I think the statistic is 250000 for a dollar in a year. Wow. And they're like, hey, if men can do it and kids can do it, maybe women can do it. (laughs) 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 That's how I think of it in terms of, you know, hey, maybe women can do it. And they issue all these cameras in colors. So I have like a little red Kodak camera. I'm desperately looking for a blue one. You could sort of match your outfit, favorite color camera. And then there's a shift because women become the family photographer. Love it. And can you tell us about the process of getting your photograph in the 19th century? So we're moving back a little bit, but I think it's super fascinating. I mean, what could one expect if you were going into a studio and what would one wear? So it depends on the type of studio that you're going to, and it depends on what time period we're talking about. So if you're talking about going to a very well-known upscale photo studio, they would have like little windows where they'd advertise their pictures, you know, show you the famous people that had come and had their picture taken. There might be a dressing room where you could fix your hair. Uh, Of course, if it's a upscale studio, it's going to be a nicer dressing room than just an average walk-in off the street place that might not even have a dressing room. And then there were lots of articles about what you should wear, what color looks best on, now we're talking not color photography, but it does influence how you look in the picture. So if you're a redhead, maybe you'd stay, want to stay away from these colors. Um, blue looks white in a, in a picture, light blue, whereas dark blue might look black. So you want to be very careful about the colors that you wear. And so there are articles in all the photography journals and women's magazines about how to look your best when you go to have a picture taken. One of the favorite things I found was this little booklet for a local studio. And in it, it was advice for parents on how to get the best picture of their children. (laughs) Because the studios would advertise, we guarantee you a good picture. And, and would guarantee to take pictures until you're satisfied. And the number one piece of advice was, please don't give them sugar before <laughs> they come to the studio. Well, because for some of these photographs, like especially early on, they have to sit still, right? And I, I mean, you mentioned braces holding people up. I mean, I'm sure there was braces holding children still, maybe? <laughs> yeah, braces to hold people, kids still. Props like toys that they could hold for their picture. My favorite posing devices are not my favorite ones, but the ones that make me cringe are the ones for babies that look like torture devices to keep them from moving. Oh, no. Uh, You generally don't see them. I mean, yeah, I've seen some where you can see the arm that comes in to clamp you around the neck. And how long are you sitting still? You know, it depends. It depends on what the picture is and what the amount of light is. Because in the early period, you had to have a really well-lit studio. So oftentimes the studios were on the top floor with big windows. Yeah, because you're talking about pre-electricity. We're talking (laughs) pre-electricity, right. (laughs) You've got to have a lot of natural sunlight. (laughs) 
So something I love about your process and one of the reasons you're here is because an ability to identify and date fashion and photographs is one of your most important tools and skills that you have um, and things that you recommend to people trying to date family photographs. Can you talk to us about the central role that clothing and specifically fashionable clothing plays in your ability to date a photograph? Sure. But you know, fashion is tricky. It is. (laughs) It's very tricky. (laughs) When is this sleeve popular? How long is it popular? Uh, What about the length of a skirt? What about an accessory? What about the way someone wears their hair? So sure, we talked about photo formats and that sort of anchors the image in a period as long as you don't have a copy, which can throw everything off. But then you look at clothing. What are people wearing? They're not going to be wearing an 1850s dress in an 1890s photograph unless they're dressed up for a party. Right. I guess. Uh, you know, a a costume party. And so right then and there, you can tell if it's an 1890s cabinet card and somebody's in an 1850s dress, maybe it's a copy of an 1850s photograph. And that happened all the time, copies. Uh, What else? It's all the little details, the nuances of what are people wearing and why? Are they dressed for the job? Are they dressed for a special occasion? There was a belief that, you know, you pretty much can even today hear it where you have a suit, right? It's your wingspan suit. That's a clothing thing. Um, for women, women, I think for the most part, kept up with the latest fashions. It's a way of maintaining that sort of the middle class values for the family. The woman on the frontier, you'll see them posed in front of sod houses, but they're posed in a really nice dress. And, and it's always a question, well, why are, they, why are they wearing that? They're wearing that because they represent their family. Yeah, and it's a social and a status symbol. And I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it's so fascinating. I do research in colonial New Mexico, and you're looking, and it's, you know, these like really remote farmers who go into town to get their photos taken, and they're wearing fashionable silhouettes because fashion mattered that much because of what it represented. Right. It represented status and respectability. Yeah, exactly. And modesty, right? I mean, there's so many like moral values also um, embodied in the clothing that that we wear. And I always say that fashion historians and fashion history are undervalued in dating, not just photographs, but also paintings. You know, you don't often hear that. Or I guess I've seen photographs that have been misdated. I remember I I was at a Frida Kahlo exhibition. And there was this photograph of Frida's family, and it's supposed to be of her mother. And it's dated to 1910 because 1910 was written on the back of it. You can't accept accept that. (laughs) If you look at the fashions in the photograph, and the, the curators had dated it 1910, but they were taking it at face value. All it took was me to look at it and say, this isn't 1910. This is much earlier because of the fashions that were on display. So it's just interesting, and and I greatly appreciate, you know, that you value that so much as one of these key skills in telling us more about the people in this photograph. Well, it, it happens all the time, right? This kind of misunderstanding about when a photograph was taken because someone has accepted what's on the back or not really understood the nuanced fashion. I see it all the time in sometimes published books, and I go, ah! 
Yeah. <laughs> if only you'd asked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, TV shows, historical TV shows. There are so many examples. We could probably talk all day about that. <laughs> and of course, we're specifically talking about Euro-American fashion when we're talking about dating fashion in these photographs. But you also talk about the role of ethnic dress in family photographs and why that's important and how to identify that. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, you know, people will come to me and they'll say, I have this photograph and this person is wearing something really odd. And I'd be like, bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> let, me, let me see what they're wearing that's so odd. In one case, it was a just really elaborate winter outfit because the people lived up in the backwoods of Quebec. But what our ancestors wore when they lived elsewhere was influenced by culture. And as you know, European costume can be very specific to the community in which someone lived, the little tiny town in which they lived. I have a photograph that I bought and it's a woman with a, looks like a bowl of lingonberries on her head. And it actually really points to where she lived, which was Maison France. Interesting. This was the dress of this little area. And then what did our immigrant ancestors wear uh, over there? Did they live in the city? Then they might actually adapt Western dress. Did they live in the country? They might still be wearing their cultural dress. Was it something for a special occasion? And then there are all these subtle clues in that dress. Wedding attire, symbols that you're a married woman versus a single woman. It gets pretty complicated pretty fast. Which is why people hire you to help them kind of yeah. uncover these nuances. People are always amazed to learn that Photoshopping is not a product of the digital age. Uh, photographs were retouched from the very beginning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating what could be done to a photograph in the 19th century. You know, Matthew Brady was obviously the master of this. His studio, in one case, swapped the heads of two men put Lincoln's <laughs> head on a body of someone else because they like the pose or, and it's a famous photograph, or when he was photographing Sherman's generals, one of the generals turned up late. So he photographed him separately and then added him to the picture. I mean, this could happen. I have an unidentified image of a big family and in the back row, so everybody in the family had their photograph taken about late 1890s. But this one woman has been dropped into the back. And you can tell that she's dropped in because the men in the back row have left space for the picture. And then you can see the outlines of where they dropped her in. And she's wearing clothing about eight years earlier. Interesting. So is that, would that be an example of maybe she passed and they wanted to bring her in? I mean, possibly. Mm -hmm. Possibly. They really wanted her as part of the big family portrait, but she wasn't there for one reason or another. As an unidentified photograph, I can't really say. The photoshopping we love on dress is, of course, those tiny, tiny corseted waists, right? You look at these images and you go, oh my goodness, her waist was must have been six inches around. And it's because they literally went in there with like, I don't know what kind of device, either scraped it off or colored it off, colored it in, but painted over it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Super interesting. I mean, photography as realistic as it is in relation to say an illustration or a portrait could still be manipulated. People still wanted to, you know, control how 
they projected themselves to the world. So you really pay attention to the nuances of someone's clothing choices, which can be incredibly important to dating and understanding a photograph, as we've discussed. I'd love if you could share any particularly meaningful or memorable fashion-related dating experiences with us. Sure. I mean, I have a photograph in my work, you know, study collection, research collection, and it it's a little card photograph. And this woman is wearing... 1850s sleeves, 1840s hair, and yet she's standing with a backdrop that's the 1870s. Interesting. So has she remade the dress? Has she used elements? Did she just have patterns for these other dresses? And the fabric on this dress, it looks like upholstery fabric. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I just, I love looking at that stuff. So there is, you know, it's all, it's not just about the dress, what I do. Uh, I know you said that you loved the story of my grandmother, Alice McDuff, and, you know, her wedding dress. And then what I didn't know was her wedding dress until I researched all the clues and fit it into the family history. And that's sort of what I do. So the dress becomes a backdrop to how does that fit into the rest of what I know about the picture or what's the rest that I know about the family. So there's a photograph that I've written about on my website, which is quite the image. It's Helmuth Voigt, or supposedly the Helmuth Voigt family. And I've written three separate articles about it, and I still don't think I have the whole story. So he may be in the photograph. There's a caption on the back, and then there's an argument on the back. So it's the two siblings arguing about whether dad is in this photograph or not. I think he is, but, you know, I'm not a member of the family. And the clothing stretches from one end of the photo to another. There's three groups of people. The guy who's supposed to be Helmuth is sitting off to the side with uh, two women, one of which is holding a baby. And then on the far left is a little group of people. There's a young man, a young woman, and an older woman. So that sort of adage about the most marriageable young woman is the woman to date the group portrait by because she's likely wearing the most recent clothing and the older woman probably not. Um, This actually fits for that photograph. The young woman is wearing one of those straw hats with the tiny brim and the high crown. You know what they look like, the little stovepipe things. And the older woman is wearing uh, one of those combs or charms in her hair that sticks up in the back of her bun, sort of circa 1898-ish. And when you look at all the photo details and then you look at all the Helmuth details, you think, what's the real story here? Because it does add up to be early 1900s if you look at it all together. But is that really what's going on? Is that really the story? Are these people wealthy enough or well-off enough to have the most recent fashion, most current fashion, or are they wearing something that's older? Or in the case of a photograph that I researched uh, of an African-American woman in Charleston in the 1870s, she's selling wares in downtown Charleston. And she's dressed in, the, the clothes is somewhat tattered. She's not doing well. Uh, we don't know her whole story. I have four possibilities of who she might be. Uh, but you have to take it all into consideration. What are people wearing? Why are they wearing it? When are they wearing it? And do their economic circumstances dictate what they're wearing and why they're wearing it? I did a long time ago have a case where 
it was a woman. She was like, you know, at one of those fairs and she's standing in front of this backdrop, this like sheet that's up on the back, back of her. And it drove me crazy. The early 20th century image, she's got all different pieces in her dress. And then I studied it for the longest time. I sort of tacked it up on the wall of my office and studied it and looked at it and said, what is the story here? And then I thought, if I were her and I only had so much money, just a little bit of pocket change, how would I update my costume to look like I really know what's happening fashion-wise? Her hat. Right. And that, like you said, it's like the easiest way to do it, right? Yep. Cheapest, easiest way to do it. Once you have a coat on and you have your hat. Yeah. And you mentioned the photograph of your grandmother. And I think that's such a fascinating story because historically, you know, women didn't necessarily wear what we would identify easily as a wedding dress. Right. And so, um, you know, wedding dresses were expensive. You didn't just buy a dress that you would wear once. So a lot of times women would wear like um, a suit, a tire, a tailored suit um, to their wedding day because they could wear it again. And so that photograph was confusing, but I think you were able to date it using your family history and what you knew about your family and knowing that they got married in a certain year and then realizing that she had a wedding band on, um, you know, all of these different clues came together to identify it as a wedding portrait, which was so fabulous. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For limited time dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. 
So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You also have this wonderful story about the Melson brothers, which I just love because it's this photograph of these four young men And two of them are seated in front, and they each have a glove on their hands. And the question is, why are they wearing this glove? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think this is just such a fun story. Yeah, the Melson brothers. I love that Melson brothers story. So it's four young men, and two of them are wearing one glove. And, you know, why? Why the one glove? That was the question that someone came to me with. And I looked at their clothing. It's a Western photo. And I found out more about them. And I just, I was like, what is this one glove? Now, I live on the East Coast of the U.S., right? I've barely been around a horse, you know. And so I called, you know, you have to rely on who you know sometimes. Who you know might give you the answer that you need. So I called a friend of mine who grew up in South Dakota. And I was like, tell me about rodeo riding. I said, (laughs) two gloves or one glove? And she said, one glove. And I said, okay. So I went back to the family and I said, any chance these guys rode on the rodeo circuit? And the owner of the photo said, yes, he was very well known for that. He was really just a farmer, but they rode all over. And I was like, that is what's happening in this photograph. That is the one glove. And then we published it because I was doing these columns for Family Tree Magazine and we published it in the magazine at, or online and wrote all about the story and the Nelson brothers. And someone wrote in and said, my grandfather is one of those people in the photograph and he was best friends with those two Melson brothers. So it's my grandfather and his brother were best friends with the Melsons. And we, we had a little reunion. That's amazing. And something I love about these photographs is there's websites where you can put up your family photographs or mystery photographs, and it connects people. You write about, I can't remember specifically what the context was, but there was one photograph that a bunch of different people had, and they kind of came together and realized they were, I think, related somehow, but it was like, otherwise, they never would have known had it not been this photograph that kind of had been copied and dispersed. Yeah, I mean, there's this woman, June Thomason, who I've been working with on and off for about 10 years. Um, I met her through the Family Tree Magazine columns and she had this tintype and she's like, I think these are the people. And we dated the photograph. Everything looked good to be the people, but, you know, it's unidentified. So how are you going to prove it? So I said, June, you know, use your genealogy skills and contact everyone you can think of that's descended from this couple. Um, I actually just had her on my podcast, The Photo Detective, talking about this whole story. And I thought, you know, I didn't hear from her for years. And then she comes back to me and she said, I did it. You did what, June? It was like, it was like five years ago. What did you do? And she said, I did. I followed up on all those leads 
from all the genealogy databases. And I said, that's great. What did you find? She goes, I found five other copies of the photograph. Wow. In the hands of the descendants. Wow. So the parents had their picture taken and then all the kids decided they wanted a copy. And then those copies filtered down in the family to the present day. Wonderful. Leaving no doubt as to who the people were. And you mentioned it, and obviously genealogy is very important in what you do, because the more you know about a family, the more you're going to be able to tell them about a specific photograph. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of genealogical information? So our listeners who may want to do some of this research on their own, how would they go about doing that? Um, And what is the role of their family genealogy in doing that? Because obviously a photo at face value can only tell you so much without knowing more about the people in it. Right. I mean, I have clients who come to me and they say, I am not interested in family history. I just want to know who's in this photograph. Got it. (laughs) And my response is, welcome to family history. (laughs) Because in order to figure out who these people are, you have to know your whole family history, not just like the direct descendants. You need to know all the cousins and all of that because photographs come down in the family in quirky ways. Think about your own family and who you're close to. You're probably closer to, I come from a big family or, you know, did come from a big family and I'm closer to some cousins more than others. Right. That is the story of families and those photographs get passed on from those connections. So it's not just the oldest person in the family who gets the pictures or the youngest. Sometimes it can be the person who's interested and then who do they give them to? It becomes a whole sort of story of the family photos as well. Absolutely. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for family history mysteries where there is no photographic evidence. Because, for instance, my great-grandmother on my father's side, Grisella Tari, um, arrived in the U.S. around 1909 from Hungary with her sister. They were separated at Ellis Island, and they never saw each other again. So we have a lot of photographic, you know, photos of my my great-grandmother, but not of her sister, And so that family connection was completely lost. It's incredibly sad. But how would someone go about researching their genealogy that way? So we we live in an incredible moment right now where there are so many photographs that are online. So what I would do, I would look at all the genealogy databases to see if anybody else has done any research. And I think I have a little surprise for you at some point (laughs) in this podcast. And then you can go on to photo databases, things like Dead Fred, which is a big website where you can search by place or by person's name to find photographs that someone might have, you know, uploaded to the site or Joe Bot, who owns the site, might have uploaded. I have a good friend who found her relative's photos from the 1860s on that site. Wow. And then This seems to be almost a pandemic hobby where people buy photographs with names on the back and then work really hard to connect them to living family, but also put them up on various Facebook pages. There's so many. I can't really name them all. There's so many photo reunion sites. For your specific problem, you said your relative came in at Ellis Island and you don't have a photograph of them and they came in in 1909. Did you know that there was a photographer at Ellis Island? No, I did not. Not really. Well, there was. And there is this amazing guy. His name is Louis Takis. 
And Lewis Takis has a website called, uh, you have to sort of search his name and the title of the website, which is Let Me Get There. And I love projects like this. So one day Lewis said, hey, I'm going to look at all those photographs of Ellis Island and I'm going to try to identify those people based wow. on the little tags that they're wearing. <laughs> who, who knew? And he is doing this. And then it's amazing. It's amazing, amazing project. He has gotten pretty famous for this project and well-deserved. Well, well-deserved. Well, that just gave me chills because we possibly there is a photograph of them together. We don't know. There might be a photograph of them together. There might be a photograph of them apart. Uh, but I would reach out to Louis Takis. Okay. Louis Takis, here I come. And look at the Library of Congress website and look at uh, maybe even Ellis Island. Here, here we go. Immigrants Photographic Legacy. I've had him on my podcast a couple of times. And then he works on passport photos as well. The stories will give you chills. Oh, my goodness. There's a, a famous one about people with luggage. The family still has the luggage. Wow. Yeah. He does an amazing amount of research. And these are the things, I mean, these are the things that I love as a fashion historian. It's always been about, you talked about being a photo curator and then, you know, you just love that one aspect of your job. That's what I loved about costume design. It was only ever the research part. And it's the diving and the digging and then the one clue that leads to the next clue and gets you from point A to point Z, basically. And then once you get there and the mystery is solved, you know, it's just, it, it it's so fun and so satisfying um, and also just so, like, lovely and inspiring, especially with all these stories about real people. It's exciting, too. To follow those clues from this to this to this. You know, the Helmuth Voigt story. I still don't know the whole story behind Helmuth. I'm not sure he actually got divorced from the first wife that was living in San Francisco. But because <laughs> I can't find a death <laughs> record for her. <laughs> and suddenly he's marrying a second person. Uh, Which was probably more common than people would like to admit. Well, before social media. You could just drop off the face of the earth and, you know, pop up in someplace else. Uh, there was a story I read in a magazine years ago about a guy who, uh, like, crossed one of the rivers out west and just started a new family on the other side. Wow. And no one knew. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I have um, a story like that in my family. I won't go into too much detail, but yeah. And definitely before you could get it plastered all over the internet, it was a lot easier to <laughs> it was do. It a lot easier. And before we had DNA revealing every family secret. And with that scandalous tidbit of information, dress listeners, we will conclude our conversation with Maureen for today. But don't worry, she will be back on Thursday to put her skills into action with one of your family photo mysteries, Cass. Yes, that's right. As alluded to earlier, I actually have this very precious heirloom locket that was handed down to me from my maternal grandmother, and I've never known who the people were inside, and she's since passed. She gave it to me over a decade ago, and I actually sent photographs of it to Maureen with some very basic info about my family, and I am so excited to share with you, dress listeners, what she discovered. Until Thursday, may you consider the fashioning of your own family history next time you get dressed. 
If you want to learn more about Maureen's work, head over to maureentaylor.com. And you can also follow her work on Instagram at Photo Detective and also listen in on her very own podcast, The Photo Detective. And of course, we love hearing from you. So please write to us at dressedtoiheartmedia.com or you can DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where we of course post images and reels to accompany each week's episodes. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes the show possible each and every week. More Dress Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.